But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. I've cooked for 12, ordered pizza for 25, watched the LWML provide a funeral luncheon for 100. Cooking a three-course meal for two is exhausting enough. But today we hear about 5,000 hungry men, not to mention the women and the children, so conservatively, let's say 10,000. It's a desolate place. We're told that twice, meaning just a few miles outside of Mott, North Dakota. There's no grocery store. There's no Taco John's. And there's no John the Baptist either. He was just brutally beheaded right before this. So it truly is a gastronomical and religiously desolate place. And so it makes sense the disciples would say, send them away. There's no use in having 10,000 hangry people here. It does no good. Let them go buy themselves something in the surrounding villages. But Jesus says, no. <laughs> You give them something to eat. Now, sometimes Jesus is funny intentionally, like in John 10, where he says, I've done many great works for my father, for which one of them are you going to stone me for? But he is not being intentionally funny here. He's dead serious. He is dead serious when he tells you, today's church, give them something to eat. And we look around, and it is a desolate place. You can say that again. The numbers don't quite add up. We don't have an extra 200 denarii in the budget. We've never had 5,000 men in these pews. We pray for 50. But nevertheless, Jesus says, you give them something to eat. So we do a quick inventory. Five loaves, jar full of unleavened wafers with a cross stamped on it, two fish, and if it's lutefisk, well, thankfully, it's only two. Although, at Trinity's voicemail, I've saved one from about two years ago, some guy promised he would join the congregation if we had a lutefisk dinner. But it's not a good outlook, so we say to Jesus, hey, we only have five loaves and two fish. We only have 120 members. Half of them aren't even here today. The offering leaves a lot to be desired. We only have three kids. We only have, we only have, we only have. Well, hey, buddy, did you forget the obvious? We only have Jesus. When Jesus says, you give them something to eat, it's so obvious, isn't it? He's saying, hey, you give them me. And when you realize that we have the very bread of life which never runs out, feeding 5,000 doesn't seem so daunting, does it? Would you rather have Jesus or a huge budget? Would you rather have Jesus or a robust children's program? Now, thanks be to God and all the glory to him if those things come. But without Jesus, those things are truly worthless. And so, my friends, if we can say that we only have Jesus, we are in a great spot. That is exactly where we need to be. Because if we say we only have Jesus, this is what we have. We have something greater than Elisha. We have something greater than Jonah. We have something greater than Moses. So first, something greater than Elisha. Our text starts off, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew. Now what's the this? Now you had it in brackets. That means it wasn't originally there. It supplied it for you so you know what was going on. This is the death of John the Baptist. 
And in so many words, we're told over and over and over again that John the Baptist is the new Elijah. He dresses an awful lot like him. Camel's hair, leather belt. He preaches like Elijah. Preaches repentance to everybody. He is persecuted like Elijah. King Ahab wants to kill Elijah. King Herod actually follows through with John. And here's how it works. When Elijah leaves to go into heaven, then it is time for Elisha. Now that John the Baptist, the new Elijah, has been killed, taken into heaven, Jesus is presented as the new Elisha, which is the greater Elijah. Do you know that Elisha does twice as many miracles in the books of Kings as Elijah does? He's got a double portion of his spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. When Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, and the dove, the Holy Spirit descends on him as a dove, I think that qualifies as a double portion. If you read Kings, Elisha's ministry looks an awful lot like Jesus's. He heals the sick, which is what Jesus does before the feeding of the 5,000. Get this, one time he fed 100 men with 20 loaves, which is still pretty impressive. And he even raised the dead. In fact, one time Elisha raised somebody from the dead after he had died. <laughs> it's a great story. He had died. They buried him. Israelites are rushing to bury somebody else. They see the Moabites raiding, so they have to quick do the burial. So they throw this guy's body into a random grave. Well, it happens to be the grave of Elisha. And as soon as that guy's body touches the bones of Elisha, the guy comes back to life. And yet something greater than Elisha is here. Jesus heals the sick. I think 20 loaves for 100 men is impressive. How about five loaves for 5,000? How about Jesus Christ feeding millions of people around the world from this altar with his body? Elisha may have raised one guy from the dead after his death, but Jesus, after he dies, he picks up his own life, and then he is able to raise everybody from the dead, which brings us to the second thing. We have something greater than Jonah here. Now, that might seem like a random Old Testament character to bring out, but keep in mind, it was Jesus himself who said in Matthew 12, this wicked and adulterous generation, you're not going to be given any sign except the sign of Jonah. And Jesus himself says, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, you should see something greater than Jonah in the feeding of the 5,000 in two ways. First of all, the fish. Second, our Lord's compassion. The fish. Now, the sign of Jonah, if you don't remember, Jesus says, just as Jonah was in the belly of a fish, and it's not a whale, it's got to be a fish, because if it's a whale, then Jesus would have fed the 5,000 with two whales, and I don't think that's all that impressive, although I don't know really how much a whale feeds. It's a fish. Jonah is in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. So, the Son of Man is in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Do you ever wonder why Jesus used bread and fish for this miracle? There's loaded biblical background behind both of these foods. Bread really has to do with death. Remember Genesis 3, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat bread. And so for Jesus to provide that bread for us, his brow sweats like blood. He dies to provide that bread. He goes through the thorns and thistles for us. But then, to provide the fish, that is really symbolic of the resurrection. Jonah in the fish, that's a resurrection. Two times after Easter, Jesus 
feeds the disciples. And what does Jesus eat? Fish. And the fish is so great. I love the fish. I was talking to Marilyn a couple weeks ago because she's got a beautiful fish on the back of her car with the Greek letters inside of it. Don, you've got a belt buckle with the Greek letters inside of it. Okay, the Greek word for fish is ichthus. Now, the fish becomes an early symbol for Christianity, I think, for three main reasons. First, the sign of Jonah. Second, the feeding of the 5,000. And then third, of course, the post-resurrection feedings. But there's more, because the Greek word ichthus is an anagram, yoda, chi, theta, upsilon, sigma. And I'd spell it out for you if you had my whiteboard up here. But just know this in English. Fish, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. The fish is a huge symbol for Christianity. We should start to have more fish dinners. They don't need to be ludifisk necessarily. Now, the second way in which Jesus is a greater Jonah is that he had compassion. Now, this is totally antithetical to Jonah. Okay, God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, are you kidding me? And he buys a ticket the opposite direction. Now, Jesus withdraws at the beginning of our text because his cousin, his predecessor, his friend, John the Baptist, has just been brutally beheaded. It's really not a good business to be a prophet when you literally see your co-workers getting their heads chopped off. And so Jesus has every right to withdraw. He is exhausted. And yet the crowds run to him. And he could have said, guys, I need some time and some rest. He is fully human after all. But Jesus doesn't do that. Matthew tells us he has compassion. In fact, the Greek word is a little more graphic. You can hear it. It's kind of a nasty word. Splots gizomai. It means his intestines moved. God can't help himself. His gut moves to help his people. So Jesus doesn't run away from Nineveh. He runs towards his people to save them. And now finally, Jesus is something greater than Moses. Moses is associated with two bread meals in the Old Testament. Passover and manna. And these meals are very different. We get in trouble both biblically and in our everyday lives if we think that every meal is just exactly the same. Okay, imagine having Thanksgiving dinner seven days a week. Happened to chance upon a TLC show yesterday. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm saying. Looks like American Wastelines if you have Thanksgiving seven days a week. Wine for dinner, that's okay, but not for breakfast. Passover and manna are very, very different. Passover is a feast. Manna is sustenance. It is just what you need to get by. So the question is, in this framework, what's the feeding of the 5,000? Is it a Passover, a feast, or is it manna, just a sandwich? The feeding of the 5,000 is really a Passover. It is a feast. Matthew tells us they sat down on the grass. Mark tells us it was green grass. If you've ever been to the Holy Land, or at least you've seen pictures, there's not a whole lot of green grass over there. Looks like my front yard this summer. It is truly an oasis when they sit down on the grass. And after the feeding, you remember how many baskets they gathered up? I'm not going to feel bad for asking because Jesus asked the disciples. He said, hey, how many baskets did I gather up? Twelve. 
He knows exactly how many baskets he is providing because the picture is taking the 12 tribes of Israel, gathering up into Jesus so that they can have a new exodus. You have the Passover and then the exodus because guess what happens next? We're going to hear it next week. Jesus walks on water. Something better than parting the Red Sea, a real exodus. Now don't worry, after the exodus, after the walking on water, Jesus feeds the 4,000. Now that is manna, because it happens after the exodus. With the feeding of the five, Matthew tells us they sat down on the grass. With the feeding of the four, he tells us they sat down on the ground. It's not too comfy for your bum. With the feeding of the five, if they don't get fed, they'll just go away and buy something somewhere else. But with the feeding of the four, Jesus says, if I don't feed them, they will faint. And if you faint in the Holy Land, there is a good chance that you will die. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, I bring this up because I want you to think about the different means by which God provides for us, the meals in the Bible, especially as it pertains to the Lord's Supper. Sometimes the Lord's Supper is a feast. God loves celebrating with you. This is Christmas. This is Easter. We've got brass, we've got the bells and the whistles, we're giving extra food for brunch, everybody's here, it's great. But more often than not, the Lord's Supper is more like manna. It is just what you need to get by. I think a large reason why the church is so hesitant sometimes to move to every Sunday communion is because they view the Lord's Supper as only a feast. And if you view it only as a feast, it would make sense that you wouldn't want it every single week because who wants Thanksgiving every week? So let's have it every other week. But my friends, more often than not, that's not what the Lord's Supper it is. It mostly is a feast, like in the feeding of the 5,000. But you are starving for Christ. That is what it means to be a Christian. And so more often than not, it is manna. It is a feeding of the 4,000. And Jesus gives you just what you need to get by. Now, if we are going to put such a heavy emphasis on the Lord's Supper, which we should, it is a good Lutheran distinctive, people are going to start asking questions. Nothing is new under the sun. Do you guys remember what manna means? I was afraid of that. Israelites walk outside of their tent, they see the bread on the ground, and they say manna, which means, what is it? People are still asking that question to this day. And when they ask it concerning the Lord's Supper, well, we've got a great answer. We can hardly do better than the liturgy. For the pastor holds up the bread of life, people say manna, and the congregation runs to the altar with their answer. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you always.